Plucky Ladies Podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cat. Today on Plucky Ladies, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of German Studies, Dr. Yoella Jacobs. Um, Yoella's research focuses on 19th to 21st century German literature and film, animal studies, environmental humanities, Jewish studies, the history of sexuality, and the history of science, to name a few. She's extremely multifaceted, which is one of the reasons I wanted to talk with her. She's also an award-winning teacher who teaches a wide range of topics, including zombies, monsters, and fairy tales. So I couldn't think of a much more interesting person to talk to (laughs) from our College of Humanities. And we work together on the general education project at U of A. So, Yoella, welcome and thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Jess. I'm so excited about your podcast. I only learned about it recently and uh, I'm really into it. So go listen to all the other episodes if you haven't yet. Well, thanks. That's so nice to hear. Um, So you told me that you had heard about where the name came from and some of the background of the podcast. So talking to you was really a no-brainer for me because, as I said, I haven't spoken with anyone really from humanities yet. And the list of things that you study is astounding. I just couldn't, I couldn't include it all in my introduction because it was like three paragraphs of topics that are seemingly very unconnected but I'm sure do share a lot of connections. So I want to get into that at some point. But first, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background, where you're from, where you grew up, what your parents did, that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. Um, Yeah. So I grew up in Germany um, in the old capital, Bonn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now now Berlin is the capital and we're just a provincial little city again, um, which is, it's kind of funny uh, to see how much things have shifted. So when I went to, um, you know, what would be middle school here, Bonn was still the capital and there were still demonstrations and there was just one, you know, like with transportations, they had, they had to send you um, home if there was a big demonstration on that day, home from school, because there was just, uh, transportation was so centralized that otherwise we wouldn't have gotten home. So there were, you know, kids from, uh, whose parents worked in embassies in my in my in my class so it was a a very um worldly feel and then all of a sudden everybody left and went to Berlin oh um, wow yeah. when did that happen uh in the early 90s hmm. um so when the uh wall came down hmm. uh that's when renegotiations happened for uh what the new capital would be and or the new old capital in a sense and it makes sense that Berlin is the capital Bonn is never you know, it, it, it has uh, 350,000 people. It's, it's not oh, a capital small. city, really. Okay. Yeah, it's very small. Yeah. And, um, and so it, it made sense. But, you know, a lot of my um, uh, friends, parents, then just commuted to Berlin uh, during the week because it was a big shift Yeah, uh, for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when the wall came down, I was in high school and one of my friends who his family is German, they went and he brought me back a little piece of the wall oh, Wow! and I still have it to this day, but you know, it's one of those things that'll just live in your mind forever. Cause it was such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I remember, I remember that night, um, sitting in front of the TV, being allowed to stay up, uh, so long. That was, a, that, that was the thing I remember that I was allowed to stay up so long. Cause I didn't under, really understand, um, fully what was happening yet. And, um, yeah, now you can buy these souvenir pieces of the wall and um, that are probably not real, but I also have one from someone who studied abroad that year. 
yeah. and sort of had a box of things, you know, magazines and, and newspaper clippings. And just, uh, you know, one day walked into the German department and was like, I don't know what to do with this. Does anyone want this? And I said, sure, give it to me. You know, it was oh, wow. like a huge piece of the wall too. Um, so wow. I think I can hand that around in class for the next 30 years. And <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's one of those things people want to get their hands on if they never have before. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So what did your parents do when you were growing up? What was their profession? Yeah, so this is an inter interesting question because it's, it's uh, a bit unusual. So um, uh, my siblings and I are the first in my family to go to college. Um, it's a little different uh, in Germany. So um, tuition isn't necessarily the obstacle, but the obstacle is sort of your educational path. Um, you sort of get put on a track. Mm. Um, and so if you are on track to go to university, that's just 20% of the population. And there's a really robust um, apprenticeship system where you learn a trade and that's combined with school for three years. Um, and I think it's a system that works really well, but so there are lots of alternatives in Germany and not everybody necessarily uh, attends university. And um, my, uh, dad it's really difficult to describe what he did um so um so well everybody knows what a ymca is here right it's yeah. sort of almost like a uh well you think about a gym more yeah. or less right and community and sort of pro programs, programs and yeah. things like that yeah yeah so in germany they are churches mm -hmm. actually um sort of alternative so neither catholic nor protestant sort of somewhere in between and my dad was leading one of those and my mom was helping out and also stayed at home with us uh, kids. They had, um, they had us pretty young. Mm -hmm. And um, so I have siblings that are much older. I'm sort of the, I'm the baby. I came late. <laughs> how many, how many siblings? Two more only. Yeah. Two. Okay. Um, well, that's yeah. still three kids is, is yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so that's interesting. So um, your family, it seems like, it sounds like at least, you know, there was some sort of connection with community there um, yeah. with your parents with running this program. Mm -hmm. And so where did your, or when and where did your sort of curiosity or interest in things like literature and film come into play? Did this come in early in your life or is it something you learned from your family or was it sort of strange and out there? Yeah. <laughs> um, so my mom is an avid reader and we went to the public library every week and we would bring back two big bags of books and read them yeah. <laughs> and then exchange them. So that certainly comes from her. And um, she always loved stories, whether they're, you know, um, in books or in film or, um, and um, so I always uh, loved to read and those were kind of the subjects I was uh, good at in school. Yeah. And um, I think the one really great benefit we had growing up in this kind of context was that um, you said the, you know, the keyword is community. We met a lot of people from different walks of life, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that really expanded um, uh, our horizons in the sense that we would really, you know, learn about different ways to go about, you know, life, not just, not just what our parents did, not just sort of necessarily what neighbors did or other people in school, but um, a, a great variety of, of um, options. And so mm -hmm. I figured out that I had um, pretty good grades, that, that, that school was sort of going well for me, that mm -hmm. I could, um, and that there were scholarships, which they aren't as common 
in Germany because you know the, the tuition issue isn't there so there yeah. aren't as many scholarships but I realized that I could um that I could kind of do this on my own that mm. um and uh and I also had a I had pretty good teachers you know yeah. and I think this is probably something you hear a lot um, yeah. <laughs> I could imagine and I had um a really good uh German and a really good English teacher and um, they both uh, inspired me and I you know so my background is so my you know my parents couldn't afford that much for us so there wasn't an opportunity to study abroad or any of these things um, mm -hmm. um, but then when I got to university and survived the first semester which is kind of sink or swim in Germany and for a moment there it was like I don't know mm. <laughs> you know sort of 4.0 GPA but I'm not sure I can cut this it's wow just, um but you know once I figured out how things worked I found ways to get um not only financial support but also then support to um spend a year in Scotland mm. and I arrived there and you know I had wonderful literary vocabulary but I also had a British accent back then, by the way. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's how, you know, that, or, or sort of like a German British accent, I would say. But, um, you know, that was the first time I set foot into an English speaking country. Oh, wow. And, you know, all this everyday vocabulary, I just didn't have it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, plug and socket, no idea. I can, you know, could write a literary analysis, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't think about that, I guess, especially if you're yeah. switching, you know, into a different culture, a different language, and you just don't think about what is their everyday terminology like? How do they converse with each other? Yeah. I mean, you learn a lot of lessons. And, uh, um, you know, in retrospect, too, I lived with, um, uh, was it four or five other people in a house? And, um, when I talked to them later, uh, you know, they, they would tell me things about this year that I completely missed because mm -hmm. they were all between the lines. And oh, wow. um, it was sort of, it was funny. I really, um, it, it, it takes a while to, to get to a level in another language where you really sort of understand nuance and social cues. And especially in English, be it American or, or British English, I think a lot of things are implied. Mm -hmm. uh, German is very direct. Mm. Um, and so it, it takes a while to pick up on the fact that if someone says, oh, that's interesting, that oh. that's actually interesting, <laughs> right? I mean, right, right, right. Okay, sure. <laughs> that actually can have multiple meanings. It's either really interesting or that is not interesting at all. <laughs> yeah, or it's problematic. I mean, I, you know, yes. my, my, um, my in-laws are um, Midwestern. And so when my mother-in-law says, oh, that's interesting, she, she means it's weird. It's yes. odd. It's <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. That is so yeah. funny. That's true. Yeah. I mm -hmm. never thought about that, but that is so true. So you don't, there's not a lot of that in the German language. It's just a lot more direct. So for instance, in English, you'll say, um, let's do lunch or I'll see you later, right? And you don't necessarily mean that you're gonna have lunch the next day or that you are going to see each other later. But in German, when you say that, you mean that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, I think I would enjoy that. <laughs> you know, it can be refreshing. Um, you, you really know um, sort of where you're at with a person, but it yeah. can also come across as rude uh, mm. sometimes, right? Because it sort of, doesn't do any sugarcoating. Right. Well, mm -hmm. okay. So that's a good lesson to all of us that, you know, when we do meet people from other countries and other cultures, like sometimes we do have to give people the benefit of the doubt because there is sort of a disconnect in the way that people communicate. And yeah. we don't always think about those things. 
Right. And, you know, I mean, Amer there are certain um, stereotypes in that way also about Americans, right? So yeah. Germans will say Americans, um, uh, they will offer you anything upon first meeting you, but they're not really your friend then, oh. right? So that's sort of the assumption. And, and of course, from the American angle, you would say, wait, I, I, I do want to be nice, right? I'm offering this not because I don't mean it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to do it you know, the next day or, right. you know, this is sort of a horizon of, of possibility in a sense, yes. right? And I think that's difficult to understand um, from, from the German angle. Yeah. They would just be like, well, why do you say it if you don't, if you're not going to do it, if you're not prepared to do it right now, right? Right. Well, it's kind of like when, you know, Americans, our, our traditional greeting is right. Hi, how are you? Or hello, how mm -hmm. are you doing? We're not really asking you, how are you doing in the sense that we want a story about what's going right. on with your day. It's more a courtesy mm -hmm. to say, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well or not mm -hmm. so good, but not like a whole diatribe to tell me what's going on. And, and it, it is kind of strange when you think about it. Why are you asking that question if you don't really want the answer? <laughs> Right, right. Now, I yeah. mean, Americans are, are masters of small talk in a sense. And yeah. um, so if a German asks you, you can spill the beans. They really want to know how you're doing. So. All right. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Um, so a couple things I want to cycle back on that you said that mm -hmm. were really interesting. One is the note you made about having good teachers, because this comes up in many yeah. of my discussions with women that um, sometimes I don't think that we realize what an influence our teachers have on us when we're young until later. Mm -hmm. And we look back and we go, oh, wow, that was my favorite class in high school because of the way that that teacher engaged me yeah. or that they were so supportive and encouraging, um, mm -hmm. you know, or they saw something in me that my other teachers didn't see. And, uh, you know, I certainly had teachers like that. Of course, none of them were in science, so I'm not sure how I ended up with Sam today. <laughs> they were always my English teachers or my journalism teacher, mm -hmm. you know, um, but I see it happening with my kids today where they talk mm -hmm. about their teachers and it's the teachers that inspire them and then the teachers that don't, you know, yeah. so they play a huge role, I think, in where we go. Um, and I just, you know, so I think about that a lot now teaching college mm -hmm. because we think of our students as adults and they are, but I also remind myself all the time, like the way I conduct myself in this class, the way I engage them, they're either going to remember it or they're not. Yeah. 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 No, that's true. And I think, you know, I originally wanted to become uh, a, a teacher, um, high school teacher. That was sort of what I could imagine because of these good teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And then, so I, I started by, um, so in Germany, you don't, college is not, um, you go into college already knowing what your major and minor is and you don't study anything else. Um, yeah. There's a little bit more of high school where, where you do kind of what we do here in Jeanette, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it just yeah. happens a little bit on a, on a different level. And so I had to decide going in and uh, picked, you know, German and English and philosophy and sort of, you know, my, my teachers were in a sense, my role models. And looking back, I realized I just also, I, I still didn't know enough other options that were out there, right? And in, yeah. in a lot of ways, figured things out along the way. And the idea... Um, that I could end up at a university was something that I sort of secretly coveted, but in Germany, it's even harder to get jobs at universities. And it's sort of one yeah. of the most prestigious jobs there is. Um, mm. That's very different from the US. Um, yeah. And so um, I just didn't think that that could happen. And the other thing is that there are a lot of, uh, it's, it's very competitive. There are a lot of elbows and I am a collaborative person. I yeah. really, um, 
and I and, you know that's one of my convictions too um you know through feminism that you know it, it's just you've got to work together that's how you get the best outcomes whether it's in research whether it's in teaching you know um and and seeing your students as your collaborators too right who, yeah. who are people with full lives and 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 have their own things going on and not just um i don't know receptacles for knowledge right. or anything like that right right, so, right right yeah i think in a lot of ways these teachers inspired me and i always thought about um wanting to do that kind of job where i'm engaged with students and part of this is also the reason why I, why I came to the US because uh, in, in the if you are at the university level in Germany you are in very pedagogically minded usually mm. um, it's it's a lot about research and teaching is sort of the thing that you try to pawn off on somebody else or yeah. you give a big lecture or and you know of course this is a big challenge now in, yeah. in times of COVID with technology too I think they're really yeah. even more than we are over here because they just don't have the basics and obviously there are great teachers there too you know sure. you find um uh find your people yeah. but what attracted me about um phd programs in the u.s and this is how i got into came to the u.s through a phd program was the idea that you could teach and that you could really learn a craft and yeah. um that you could practice that and, and and learn all the ins and outs of this profession and sort of do them all right and and, yeah. and not just focus on one side of it yeah. Yeah. And uh, for sure, I think that um, sometimes we forget here in the U.S. that we're actually pretty well positioned to do those types of things in university jobs, even though there are still, of course, people even here who think mm -hmm. the old model is the way to go. Stand in front of a room, profess your knowledge, and the students are, quote unquote, learning it because you've said it um, mm -hmm. versus really engaging with our students and giving them lots of opportunities to actually do things right. <laughs> in their classes, which is to some people is quite a shock. I mean, I, I had a discussion with someone recently about this and had to sort of think about, you know, um, why don't we want students taking just lecture classes in gen ed? And, you know, what, what I land on is, well, if we're expecting them to engage with things like critical thinking and mm -hmm. communication, um, mm -hmm. you know, how are you doing that if you're sitting passively in a classroom listening to someone profess knowledge? It doesn't seem to work, you know, that way. But um, yeah, but it's really interesting that, you know, your path was so different from mine because you went into your college experience knowing the path that you were on and there really wasn't a lot of wiggle room there. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, mm -hmm. you know, for us, it's so common for students to think they know what they want to do. And then they go to college and they take some class that they like, or they meet some professor they love mm -hmm. and they go, Ooh, I want to try that. And many of our students are switching majors into their sophomore, even sometimes right. their junior year. Yeah. Um, and I don't know which, which one I think is better. I think there's probably merits to both, but, um, you know, I've talked to several Europeans and they've told me the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. I kind of knew where I was headed from coming out of high school. And that was the end of that. Yeah. And I mean, high school, I mean, now it's a year shorter in Germany, but um, when I was in high school, it went until I was 19. And so mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it gives you a little bit more time to figure this out. And you do in the last two years, um, you really choose a couple of fields and, and sort of have intensified um, you know, study those more intensively. Yeah. And I think that helps to some degree, but it's still difficult. And now, um, so I did this, uh, uh, now there's a, a BA and MA system in Germany. That wasn't the case when I uh, went. And so now I think it's even trickier because now there's a structure of a BA and an MA, just like in the U S 
but you have to know from the start what you're doing and and you only um, uh, study that subject. And um, I almost think it's sad. I I mean, I I really love Gen Ed. (laughs) There's a reason why I'm involved with it because I think it really gives you um, an opportunity to explore other things. And, and, you know, while you're studying, I think that those options should be there just to learn something new. And even if it's just one course you take for fun here and yeah. there, yeah. Um, you know, you might, you might study to, I don't know, you might get your BA in or you, you know, in business or, or whatever, but you might take a fairy tale class with me. Right. And right. maybe that is one of the most memorable, memorable, or maybe not, right. It depends. But yeah. Um, but just to think about the world differently and not be so locked into one way of thinking and yeah. one way of, of reasoning, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I've said this before on this podcast, you know, for me personally, um, I was the typical young girl who believed that science and math were too hard. I sort of mm-hmm. fell into that stereotype of, you know, I'm going to be an English major and I like to read mm-hmm. and I can write and those are the things that I can do. And so I'm mm-hmm. going to go that path. Um, it seems like the path of least resistance for me, you know, I was a yeah. good student, but I wasn't one of those students that thought, you know, that had nothing else going on, but study. So I was, mm-hmm. you know, I could get distracted with other things and, and then, you know, go to college and take a geology class in a gen ed program because I have to take science. And I mean, I didn't even know geology was a thing really, because yeah. we were never exposed to it in high school. Yeah. And I went, oh, wow, this is, this is absolutely exciting and amazing. And I want to go out West and go see the Grand Canyon. I mean, I'd never left my, mm-hmm. really my home state, except to go to Disney world, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it just changed my entire outlook on the world. And I don't think I had an appreciation for just science itself and how science works and how it propels us forward until I took that general education science course and went, yeah. this is fascinating. So, you know, it's not going to happen to every student in the same class or the same mm-hmm. subject, but, um, mm-hmm. If I hadn't been forced to take that class, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm sure I would have done okay, but it just changed my life in the most drastic ways and in the best ways for me. Um, So I'm a big proponent of exposing students to all different things. I just think it's really important. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so interesting to hear. And, you know, it makes me remember moments um, in high school um, in both in math class and in chemistry and a little bit biology too. I I remember distinct moments where I learned about something specific and I understood it Mm -hmm. and it was so fascinating. And, you know, that wasn't always the case in those fields for me, but, um, but I remember distinctly when it was and how exciting that was to me and how it really, um, yeah, made me, made me wonder whether that was the area I wanted to be in. And then, you know, you're in high school and you get distracted and then you, you, you miss a class or you miss an explanation and you can't follow the next thing as well. And you're like, oh no. This is and, too you know, hard. Went, right. And I went to an all girls school too. Oh, so what you're saying there um, also about gender, I think is, is uh, really relevant. I think for me, it was beneficial in the sense that, um, I never really learned that I wasn't supposed to contribute, right? Mm-hmm. I think. And sure. so um, when we were in our final grades, a couple of our courses, because they were so focused on specific things, we sort of shared with other schools. And that's mm. when we, when there suddenly were guys in the class. Yeah. And I remember the guys joining our English class and them dominating the first few lessons and, and, and me thinking about this and being a little bit confused. And then they just kind of stopped though contributing yeah and so I just picked up you know kept 
doing what I had been doing and things sort of went back to quote unquote normal for me. But I realized had this happened to me, I don't know, in earlier grades, Mm -hmm. I might've never developed what my normal was. Right. And I would have maybe not contributed in those ways. Yeah. Yeah. That is so fascinating because I've often wondered about like that. What are the benefits of students being in all girls or all boys schools when Mm -hmm. they're young? And, you know, the, as a parent, one of the obvious things your brain goes to is, well, they're not distracted by the opposite sex, mm-hmm. you know, if that's what they're into. And, True. you know, when your kids hit their <laughs> hormonal age, I mean, I've got a mm-hmm. just about 15 year old and, you know, you wonder like when he's at school all day and there's girls around, you know, like, is it just distracting? And um, not that that's any excuse for them not to do their work, but <laughs> I mean, yeah. I have stories from him from last year where the girls were, you know, distracting him purposefully where they were you know, touching mm-hmm. his hair and hugging him all the time. And he would say, mom, I don't like it, you know, but you don't think about the fact that, oh, if you're in a room full of just boys or just girls, there is none of that potential competition or setting mm-hmm. up these gender stereotypes or these sort of, you know, who dominates the discussion based on gender roles. It's really just, you're all sort of on even footing to begin with. And so you can really develop that sense of personal confidence that yeah. maybe you can't when you're in a classroom that's more, um, that's mixed gender. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do remember that from a young age feeling like, especially in my science and math classes, it was always the guys dominating the discussion. Yeah. And in the yeah. English classes, it was usually the girls dominating the discussion. It was just kind of an interesting breakdown. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, in, you know, and for me, I also remember sort of um, the moment, you know, you don't have a sense of your own, you know, are you good? at school you until a certain age and until a certain grade right right and for me it's sort of um in some sense emerged out of uh, a, a, a little rivalry and and then you start comparing yourself yeah. and I realized oh I can do that too I can also have A's in this right and right. so then that was sort of the first time that I consciously tried and started thinking about I guess grades instead of learning to to some extent Mm -hmm. and I don't know if it would have played out that way because that was already I think grade seven or eight Mm -hmm. so you know teenage was around the corner and um oh I'm telling you I mean the distractions I think would have really I think they would have had their effect and I think um there would have been so many other social dynamics. I mean, there are already a lot of social dynamics in a classroom, right. but there would have been a, a whole other added layer to it that might have, might well have um, turned this in a different direction. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, I can tell you from experience that I spent way too much time thinking about the boys and what mm-hmm. they were thinking of me and how to get their attention and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm which mm-hmm. was a huge waste of time. Now, looking back on it, <laughs> I should have been spending that time doing more studying and talking more in class and being more assertive. But, you know, it was like, oh, you want to look attractive to the young boys right. or, you know, right. this kind of thing. It, and not everybody is experiencing that. But for me, it was it was a very real part of my school experience. Yeah. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it, I'm sure there's things to be said for separating them at a young age, but um, it's just interesting to think about. But I do, I wanted to ask you, so I saw mm-hmm. in your information, so you went to Chicago yeah. for your PhD? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so what was yeah. that like? So, um, yeah, so I had um, started my study. So in Germany, it's sort of, it's a good sign if you are a several different universities. So I had started out in my hometown and then I spent that year in Scotland and then I went to Berlin. Mm-hmm. And um, in Berlin, it already became, it was sort of clear to me, Scotland had really inspired me to um, be, to to uh, 
look for PhD programs elsewhere. First of all, because I've met people from other um, countries and from other systems. Mm -hmm. And then also, um, you know, German studies it's, is much more capacious than just German literature. So mm -hmm. um, in, in Germany, of course, you know, if you do history, you do German history, if you, right? It's just like with English here, if you do history sure. here, you do. So, but um, if you go abroad, everything German is under one umbrella. So you can mm. do literature, culture, philosophy, history, um, all of that together. Um, and that was really attractive to me because I was always, I think, in some way interdisciplinary minded. Mm. And um, so I started looking at PhD programs. My sister was already in the States and I had mm. met some Americans in Scotland and yeah, so I started looking around and applying. Um, Chicago um, ended up being uh, the choice. And um, it was, I mean, Chicago as a city was great. The University of Chicago was uh, intimidating. Sure. <laughs> um, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of catching up um, for me because, I mean, doing this in another language, I mean, well, both languages, I, I sort of, if you're doing, if you're studying basically the, the culture and literature of your of your um, the language you grew up with and of course you have a benefit you have sort of a, an advantage there but then still you sure. have to write your papers in English and all sure. that and I, sure. I you know first semester I just went to you know I took a course in anthropology took it and and in retrospect I'm thinking whoa I was courageous and 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 um confident <laughs> it was quite the challenge I'm sure there's a lot that I missed there too and in retrospect I remember some assignments that I really also didn't understand um sure which although I would say you know they weren't well explained to me either but um so right. grad school was um was the best thing about grad school was that there was a really good community in the German program and we um regularly regularly read each other's work and mm -hmm. gave each other feedback I think yeah. that's that's the way I got through grad school mm -hmm. and I still do that with some colleagues so shout out to those yeah. <laughs> friends who yeah. who you know who read chapters um derma studies is a book discipline meaning we have to produce a monograph for tenure and oh, wow. so um yeah so there's a um a lot of uh emphasis on writing yeah. and um, to do that in another language or in, in two languages and, and do it well and do it so it sells or is published by university press is, is quite demanding. And I think it really only worked because there were so many people and this is what I said earlier about being collaborative and, and, and working together. Um, it, it makes the scholarship better. Mm -hmm. And it's how I learned some of my most important um, competencies yeah yeah I think it's so important in the sciences I think it's less common for people to be mm -hmm. sharing you know drafts and things although they have mm -hmm. co-authors on articles and things and you share your drafts yeah. back and forth but you know I've seen both where there are people who are very collaborative and then there are people who are very proprietary about their data mm -hmm. or their interpretations and so sometimes you do get that more competitive sort of you know well that's not what that data means and then there's arguing and okay well we're not going to publish your paper because we don't agree so there's, you know, people don't often realize, especially geology, it's a very creative science in the sense mm -hmm. that we are talking about things that happened potentially billions of years ago. We didn't witness these things. We are right. piecing together a story from the evidence that the earth is mm -hmm. giving us. And it's real evidence. It's not like we're making it up, right, right. but we have to piece together a narrative that fits that evidence. It's still a story. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 
geologists are trying to create the best story for the evidence, but also a story that makes sense with what we know about how the earth works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't have the same story from the same evidence. They come up with different stories. So um, it can be very competitive, but I think that the best work comes out of those collaborations where you have multiple perspectives coming together to try to best explain what we're seeing, which is really, really cool. So it's something that, you know, I would say to listeners is, to not be afraid of. I know some of us, myself included, who like to write, one of my biggest hurdles is sharing my writing with people. I just yeah. do not like to show it to people. And I think it's just this fear of, you know, people aren't going to like it. I'm not really a writer. I'm not talented. Mm-hmm. This is horrible. Mm-hmm. And then you share it with people and they give you feedback and it's not all good, but you feel good about it at the end of the day that you've gotten something out of that collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I remember the first time I shared something and I was ready to, to cry afterwards because it just been, felt so vulnerable and personal. And, and at the same time, it, like these trusted people, you know, uh, um, when they tell me something now, I know that that is something I need to fix when they say so. Yeah. Right. And it's really yeah. great to, to build a network. And at the same time, you know, the humanities are actually very, um, focused on single author publications. It's oh, very wow. rare to have multiple authors. So on some level, it's, it's the collaboration has to happen elsewhere mm. um, because of the way things get counted in our field. I have one publication with, I think about 10 others, which is incredibly unusual in my field. Um, and then, it, I mean, if you do applied linguistics, there are some areas where that's more common, but the one, one, the fields where you have to have a monograph, that's where it's sort of about your, single achievement but you know I love that you you're saying that it's storytelling what geology does because I think you know this is something I love about the interdisciplinary work that I do I think um, that's sort of at the core of everything and it's an an interpretation right deducing from the data and sometimes when I do this in a Jeanette course that's interdisciplinary um uh, you know, some students who are sort of set on their on their science path already will say, "Well, no, but but that's objective, and that's you know, there is no interpretation there." And 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 you know, then I have a couple assignments that challenge that a little, just to yeah. show, look, if if humans are designing the experiments, if humans humans are looking at the data, you cannot get out of your head. That's just what it is, right? Right. And so there's always an element of that in there. And that's exactly also why you need collaborations because you need multiple perspectives to catch your own blind spots, right? And mm-hmm. your own biases and, and, and assumptions. And um, so in any discipline, I think this can only be beneficial. Yeah, yeah, for sure, absolutely. Oh, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that about single authored works in the mm-hmm. humanities and science It's just the opposite. It's so rare yeah. to have a paper where there's only, there's only one author, you know, because most of the time you're gathering data from multiple types of analyses. And so you don't mm-hmm. do them all necessarily yourself or you have graduate students that have mm-hmm. collected data. So their name goes on the paper um, and rightly so because they do a lot of the legwork, right. you know, but it's mm-hmm. often just one person who's doing the actual writing but you mm-hmm. can't not, you know, include the people who have all put the pieces together to create right. that work. So that's really interesting. Um, yeah. So that leads me to, I want to talk about your work so that we have mm-hmm. time to talk about it because I don't even know where to begin. The list of things that you do is just so <laughs> incredibly diverse. Um, but I think it is interesting that there are 
um, you, you have some things you do that actually do lean towards science in the sense that mm-hmm. I've noticed you have collaborations with, you know, environmental fields, you, you mm-hmm. put together some database that's related to plant studies, which I mm-hmm. want to hear about because I didn't yeah. know what that was. I saw that today and I was like, oh my <laughs> goodness, is she a botanist too? <laughs> and then you have things you do that lean all the way towards the very creative where you, you mm-hmm. teach about fairy tales and monsters and film and mm-hmm. zombies. So Talk a little bit about what you're into these days and sort of what inspires you to do this kind of work. Yeah, totally. And and you know what? I mean, it, it's actually, it fits this really well because no, I'm not a botanist, right? And in, in order to be able to actually do this kind of work, I need to collaborate with botanists. So. Right. And so I think this is really um, at, at the core of that, I think um, with interdisciplinarity or if you have interests that sort of don't fall squarely into whatever we think the limits of our disciplines are. And I mean, this is something we've been thinking about in Gen Ed too, yeah. right? What yeah. does it mean to do humanities and natural sciences? Um, but of course, we, we, we all know that if we go back in history, that, that these disciplinary divides are actually um, something that only developed sort of um, in the 19th century and that a lot of these things were hanging together for people um, for, for most of human history in, in a sense. And so yeah. for me, um, <clears throat> I, I can tell sort of the story of how my interests developed a little bit through um, uh, the book I'm working on. Um, yeah which is based on dissertation work. And so um, it, it's actually, um, so, and, and maybe this is for if there are any graduate students listening. So when I was doing my comprehensive exam and I had this idea, I wanted to write a dissertation about monstrosity in some way or another. And I, I walked out of my comps and my um, dissertation chair said, no, you know what, that's been done. You have to find a new topic. And it kind of took me a year to find a new topic. So if oh, wow. anyone is, you know, stuck somewhere in graduate school at that point, you know, you, you'll, you'll find your topic. Yeah. Um, um, don't give up and Google a lot. I mean, that's kind of what I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so my project came to be because I discovered an author who um, has, was sort of, uh, censored and neglected and um, throughout his lifetime and even after his family prohibited the publication of his works mm. and um, he ended up in um, in a what we what would then be called an insane asylum and, oh. and so forth and I was really fascinated with his story so they're really grotesque and I think that's where you start seeing the connections and so I realized that this is sort of that he um, was writing um, in a specific genre that he was writing these short grotesque texts and that people after him picked up on that as a literary style and, and, and type of writing. And that between the 1890s and the 1930s, a lot of people were writing in the style. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is unique to the style is that it's so, it, it's sort of grotesque from the perspective of, of often non-human um, uh, narrators, uh, so like plants tell stories, mm. animals tell stories, yeah. um, or figures who are not accepted as fully human at the time. And in the German context, those are a lot of Jewish voices. There are also black voices, um, intersex uh, voices, and so forth. Mm. And so what these authors did um, was write stories about society, um, um, criticism of society, very humorous. Um, very overdrawn and exaggerated. So really grotesque from the mm-hmm. viewpoints of people who didn't fit in. Mm. And I realized that people didn't know that this genre 
or that most people sort of didn't realize this genre existed yeah because and this is what i argue in my book because the nazis in a lot of ways made this reality right a lot of these things that were exaggerated that were um that sounded like they couldn't be true um horrifically though became true right the persecution yeah. of people who didn't fit in yeah um and so um there's a i found a, a quote that's sort of at the very end of my dissertation work that really opened this up for me um i found it like in the last month that i was writing there's an uh, um a famous uh uh, German Jewish intellectual who said, you know, he used to write these stories in this genre and he would fall off his chair laughing. But then he said, after Hitler, you know, it's just not the same. I can't read oh, these anymore. Yeah. And so I realized we had forgotten that the genre existed, which was really popular throughout um, what's called the Weimar Republic, uh, you know, it, it, um, and famous people like uh, Franz Kafka um, wrote in this style. Yeah. But we we didn't realize that there was this context of this genre of this type of writing. We didn't connect the dots because afterwards you just couldn't read it anymore. Yeah. It just had become on some level horrifying. Right. And so that was a huge realization for me. And mm -hmm. so in that book, I'm putting together, um, I'm sort of looking through the corpus of these texts and a lot of that in included also archival work and I'm um, pulling out certain characteristics of this genre. What does, mm -hmm. you know, so how does this work? Yeah. Um, and then um, certain trends and, and those trends led me, and this is a long, long story short, those trends led me um, uh, in these three directions of looking at, at plants, at animals and um, at marginalized human voices uh, specifically um, oh. or primarily. In, in Jewish studies. Um, yeah. um, and so, so each chapter does something different. And, you know, um, so the book from the start set me up to, to have to have expertise in different fields. Mm -hmm. um, I discovered while I was writing my dissertation that there were people doing animal studies. So people who are not doing animal science, but who are looking at um, animals and culture literature and so forth because of mm -hmm. course a lot of the time when we define what's human we define it against the animal right and right um you know a lot of the time the animal is just a symbol or it's it's a means to an end in writing but when we start looking at the animal for itself yeah. or the kinds of animals that are there um there is sometimes an entirely different way to to read a text or to understand a historical moment mm. and um yeah. For plants, this didn't exist. Mm. And now I'm getting to the point sort of where, where yeah. you asked about this network. So yeah. um, I found this increasingly fascinating that, um, that we kind of ignore plants who, you know, I mean, we wouldn't be able to breathe if they right. weren't around, right? Right. And sure. we sort of just, you know, we think about, oh, a rose is a rose, right? We sort of, that's where we stop thinking um, yeah. maybe about plants in, in literature and culture very often. Um, and yet they're everywhere in yeah. art, you know? And yeah. um, so I started finding like-minded people and, and founded the Literary and Cultural Plant Studies Network um, where people can connect um, with their work. And, um, and we actually, and this, this will be funny to you, we got the, we got the domain plants.arizona.edu. It wasn't taken by oh any natural scientist. <laughs> That's amazing. That is yeah. so amazing. So if you go there, you're not going to necessarily learn the botany or science of plants, nope. but you're going to learn a whole lot about how plants have played a role 
in things like literature. Right. And let me give you an example, because this, yeah. this probably still sounds pretty abstract or, or hard to <clears throat> sort of um, picture. So um, one thing I write about is, for instance, um, around 1900 in Germany, um, botanical instruction was prohibited from school curricula because people were afraid that school children would learn about the birds and the bees. Um, from plant they, studies. From plants, yes. Okay. Um, because right. if you look at plant reproduction, you find 24, you know, Linnaeus uh, Lin organized them uh, into 24 different classes and you find um, ways of reproducing that do not correspond to human morality or sort of the, the ideas of heteronormative oh. Oh. reproduction, monogamy, oh right? And so, yeah, plants were dangerous. I call this vegetal eroticism. The, the <laughs> idea that, you know, um, that people had to actually censor uh, knowledge about plants because they were too afraid that it would corrupt young minds. And so the literature wow. that I... Um, look at our stories that satirize this to no end because of course that's it's you know you can have a field day haha ha, with <laughs> that the metaphors are endless right? right and and of course you cannot um hide something from people that you can study outside right right sure um, it's everywhere yeah so uh yeah. so that is one of those examples where where i would argue plants actually shaped culture and they shaped literature, they shaped sort of curricula, mm. yep. even law books, if you will, right? They sort of, even though they didn't do anything that you could measure in that sense, right? But um, the imagination about plants mm -hmm. was in people's heads wow. that resulted in, in those ideas, yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I never would have thought like, okay, so you think about plants not being monogamous. I mean, who would ever have even put those <laughs> yeah. two words together in a sentence because you don't think of plants as maybe even making a choice or having free right. will. I mean, they just mm -hmm. do what they do because that's how they do it. Um, right. And so it's also that idea of like humans sort of anthropomorphizing everything around them. And like you say, comparing everything to human behavior and human yeah. morality, human choices, human. And it's like, well, you know, the natural world doesn't conform to your human, uh, you know, reasoning or whatever it is. This is just how the natural world operates. Right. And in fact, you could make the same argument in the animal world where it's very yep. rare to have animal species that are monogamous. I mean, they right. reproduce for the sole purpose of reproducing. Yeah. And so many humans, I think, just can't even fathom that that would be an option. You know, right. it just seems like it would destroy all, <laughs> all of the things that sort of hold our society together. Right. And, you know, and it, I think the, the crucial word in what you're saying is natural, right? Because mm. it's, it's, a, it's, it's this idea that certain behaviors are natural. And really they are moral. There's a certain, you know, the morality behind it, certain ideas that might be also cultural conventions that might differ in different contexts, right? Mm -hmm. But the argument that's often made that this is natural behavior. So there is, um, for instance, a legal uh, uh, paragraph that's, or a, or a crime that's called a crime against nature mm -hmm. still um, exists. And that's been invoked when, you know, in, in debates about same, uh, same sex marriage, for instance, too, I mean, to this day. So this idea that there is a certain naturalness, mm. um, instead of saying that it's, instead of coming out and saying it's actually about people's morality, it's right. not imitating nature. That's, I think, inherent in a lot of discourses um, mm. about how to behave, how to live, right? And, yeah. and I mean, 
which is we actually see that everywhere in food too, right? Yeah. Everywhere the label is, is natural and, yeah. and it's, it's unclear what that means anymore. Well, sure. Because actually a lot of what you're talking about is quite unnatural. I mean, the idea that there has mm -hmm. to be one way to love somebody, one way to be married right. or not married, right. one type of clothing to wear, one type of worship that you're allowed to do, you yeah. know, there's, yeah. there are clearly groups of people who would say that the only quote unquote moral way to live is ABC. And they're very, very limited things mm -hmm. that, you know, ways you can live and things you can do to me, setting up those boundaries is actually quite unnatural because you're mm -hmm. telling people that there's only one way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and we know from looking at the natural world that that actually is not true and that we adapt. I mean, everything has yeah. to adapt. So I think about, you know, um, as a scientist, I think about climate change is a perfect example where, mm -hmm. you know, we've been living a certain way for so long and it seems like the way that humans should and, and do do it. And mm -hmm. now we're facing a planet that's saying, hold on a second, you need to adapt yeah. and change or this planet won't be here anymore. So what do we do as humans? We yeah. fight about it instead mm -hmm. of recognizing <laughs> the natural world is giving us a very clear signal mm -hmm. <laughs> that we're interfering with its ability to go on being the natural world. And, um, I just find that fast. Like humans are so good at twisting and turning everything to fit sort of what they believe is the way yeah. to do things. Yeah. yeah. And if you look at history, I mean, that's why I'm interested in history of science and history of sexual sexuality too, because we see how, um, how science for instance, and, and early sexology too, are just instrumentalized by moral convictions um, mm -hmm. throughout yeah. history. Right. And I think yeah. the same is true for environmentalism um really interesting it has a really interesting history too and and the one thing that for me is also fascinating about environmentalism is the idea that it's the same everywhere right, right. we somehow use this in the singular and mm. we think that everybody does it the same way and um you know when uh i would argue no there are cultures of environmentalism um just as there are cultures of other things too right and um cultural differences yeah and um there's sort of this this of course there are certain trends yeah and we can see where they originate right yeah and certain certain uh, an emphasis for instance on individual responsibility mm -hmm. uh and which often gets countered by sort of you know look at corporate responsibility yeah. um and so forth but um it really is a cultural phenomenon and, and germany is actually a really good example for that because um, it's uh, a very environmentally conscious um, uh, uh, culture. Mm -hmm. But um, this kind of this environmentalism, um, when you look at the history of it, you see how it emerged and responds to certain things. Mm. Um, for instance, there's a very strong anti-nuclear uh, movement um, because of Chernobyl, mm -hmm. and yep. that was sort of reinvigorated um, after Fukushima, and so. Um, there's a certain environmental choice being made there on a national level mm -hmm. that, um, if you ask Germans, is an, an, an environmentally sound decision. If you ask people elsewhere in the world about nuclear energy, they give you different responses. Right. And it's fascinating to look at how this is so culturally entrenched. Yeah. Um, because, you know, we, we sort of think, I think in our conversations about environmentalism, we kind of have this assumption that we all know what to do. Or yeah. what we should be doing, right? Yeah. And I don't think it's actually that straightforward, right? There's, no. it's really hard to wrap your head around it because there is a ton of science involved that, that you know, a lot of lay people, me included, in that respect, don't necessarily understand, right? right. And so I think 
environmentalism is just as much about communication yeah. and culturally attuned communication to yeah. bring a point across, right? We see that with keystone um, species and, and those kinds of, right? We, we see that people can pull out an example and make it um, really uh, work for uh, a certain population. We saw that with the ozone layer, for instance, yeah. right? People yep, yep. banded together and, they, mm -hmm. and, and, and did something about it and mm -hmm. it worked. But that's because of communication. So there's right. we need both, right? We need the science, and we need a way to bring this across to multiple cultures. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I think this is the biggest problem in science today: is that there are tons and tons of scientists who have amazing work and data that supports everything we already know about climate change, mm -hmm. and we have very few people who are good at relaying that information to the public in a way that connects with them, yeah. not just "Hey, here's the facts," and so you know you have to do this but why this should be meaningful to everybody on the planet is a very mm -hmm. hard thing for scientists, I think, to get across because we do sometimes come off as, well, they just, you know, they say that's a fact and that we're all supposed to believe it because it's a fact, but I, you know, people want more. They wanna have right. an emotional yeah. connection to these things. They want to have an understanding of why it means something to them. And when you think about people who are struggling just to put food on their table, it's really hard to connect with those people on levels of environmentalism and or climate change, because yeah. these may seem like very far distant issues that aren't going to affect whether or not I can feed my kids tomorrow. Um, but it might affect your yeah. kids' kids' ability to feed their kids because there may not be enough food produced for the, you know, the way our population is growing. So it, it's a very tricky, it's just a very tricky problem that I think as scientists, we have to grapple with how do we better connect with the world at large, with just regular people, just different communities, and what's going on in our environment and how yeah. we can be better. And you know, I think the social justice element is actually really, really crucial to yeah. um, environmentalism. I think it cannot be separated out. Um, uh, some of the work I've done, I mean, and, and we know that environmental racism exists, we know that sort of yeah. poverty is, is a crucial factor, of course, and some of the work I've done is, is for instance, on um, uh, uh, refugee populations in Germany who were, you know, when they um, arrived in Germany, um, part of what was offered to them was environmental education um, initiatives. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were really focused sort of on learning how to recycle properly in Germany, which can be a science in and of itself. Sure, There's all sure. these color-coded bins. And, you know, if you have a really well-functioning system, it, it tends to proliferate and get complicated. Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, and a lot of that um, discourse was focused on, okay, how to be a good citizen, right? How, how to do your recycling. And, and you, what was lost from view was, um, was sort of, why is this important, right? Why does this help the environment? Yeah. Uh, but also, what do people know who, who, who are coming in, right? Um, what do they bring with them in terms of environmental knowledge? I think there's often an assumption that people don't know or don't care. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes actually those, you know, who are poor, they know how to live with scarcity of resources, right? Yeah. And they might've experienced some of the effects firsthand because they might um, have, you know, uh, a different way of living perhaps with land or a different um, way of experiencing the, the sort of fallout from, um, sort of the immediate effects of, of climate change that are already around that are sort of, um, you know, uh, proliferating in the economy sure. um, or the economies of the home countries, right? Or the trade or so forth. And I, mm -hmm. I think sometimes um, 
So that might be the third piece in addition to the science and the communication might be to, to also listen to populations and, and to take into account what people know and yeah. and that gets back to this environmental cultures of environmentalism piece to see where you can actually start and you know so you have to not just in the communication talk but also listen and yeah, right. kind of see what's actually needed and and um and maybe what's already there yeah I actually think the refugee population is going to become key in this discussion because mm -hmm. this to me is going to be the single biggest problem when the ice sheets melt and sea level rises and yes. we have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, millions of people globally who will have to migrate and leave their homes and they will become refugees perhaps in their own countries or perhaps yeah. in other countries because they have yeah. to leave their coastal cities and have, they have to leave their hometowns. And I think about the US and like, okay, mm -hmm. so imagine telling the Midwestern states that you're now going to have a flood of people, millions mm -hmm. of people coming mm -hmm. into your towns and cities, your schools, your healthcare facilities, your churches, yeah. your neighborhoods, and they're all going to need the same services that you already mm -hmm. need and your system is going to be overtaxed. And the reason they're gonna to have to do that is because their cities near the coast are gone. They're completely yeah. covered in water. And now we have a refugee crisis in our own country right. because of climate change. And so sometimes I'm not sure that people even think about, you know, not just the fact that, you know, ecosystems are suffering or, you know, species you've never heard of are going extinct mm -hmm. or, you know, the ice caps are melting and we don't wanna lose our ice caps. But the fact that you know, your town could be flooded with people who are coming from a place that's been destroyed. Um, yeah. And that's going to affect your local economy. It's going to affect your ability to get services that you need. It's, you know, all of those things are going to come into play. Um, and so I think the, you know, in particular thinking about, you know, refugees as a source of knowledge and information, Yeah, it's, we're going to have to think about that in the future as this is unfolding. Because unfortunately, I don't think we can completely avoid that. Right. No, I don't think we're on track to avoid it. Right. I mean, yeah. that, that the science is very clear on that. And, and you yeah. know what, what's sad, though, and I, I agree, absolutely agree with you. And what's sad and is that, of course, often the opposite happens. Right. And um, yeah. so you earlier mentioned that I look at monstrosity and I think monstrosity is often just code for for someone different from you. Right. In mm. a lot of texts, it's yeah. just someone who is just slightly different from you. And what I find so fascinating about this idea that we make someone another, right? An other yeah. and, and sort of um, say that this is wrong, the unnatural way to live or whatever it right. may be, right? right? Is that the differences can be really minor. Yeah. So let's say if someone from New York comes to the Midwest, that would probably already be enough. And we've seen that in German history too. Um, you know, the, the wars sort of, really changed uh, uh, the, the, the landscape of where people lived and settled down. And um, you could argue for German history that that was one of the first big refugee crises. Yeah. And people were upset that, you know, their neighbors were um, maybe, you know, Catholic and they were Protestant or right. that they would speak in a different German dialect, right? That right. was plenty for them to sort of vilify the other. Yep. And, um, yeah. So when we talk about, you know, any of these topics, whether we, whether, whether we look at differences of religion or whether we, we talk about all the um, racial inequity mm -hmm. um, in this country or, or, or gender or any of the things we, we touched on, I think it, it's so quickly that this, that this move of difference is um, um, sort of vilifying the other. And the, the only hope that I have is that 
one thing I learned about monsters is that we're interested in them. Yes. We're not just afraid, we're also fascinated, yes. right? That's otherwise we wouldn't have all these stories around. And I mean, Halloween is around the corner. Um, we, we're fascinated with, with what's different from us too. Right. And that's, I think the one, uh, you know, starting point for me to say, I hope that we can be, that we can stay fascinated and that yeah. we want to know more. Yeah. And then finally the other will not be so strange and so different, right? Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. I think that's fascinating. I love that idea because we are very good at othering, Mm -hmm. Um, especially we see it a lot here in the US recently, right? We're very, very good at at othering, whether you're a scientist or you're female or you're Mm -hmm. LGBTQ or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, right? We're Mm -hmm. just so good at putting people into compartments and making judgments about them. So I like that idea that maybe we can find a way to hinge this on our fascination and wanting to understand the other versus Mm -hmm. being afraid of or vilifying the other, I think would be a great way to look at it. Um, I want to end with one last question and I want you to tell me how do zombies play a role in your work and teaching? (laughs) Because that's the one topic I can't quite figure out how it fits in with everything that you do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, All right. So I teach a course that's called From Animation to Zombies. And Mm. um, it's about the question, what is life? And in a lot of ways, it brings everything together that we just talked about. Um, So the title came to be because I was looking for a combination that said from A to Z um, in a a sense, right? And I think there was a previous version where it started with from abortion. And then my my advisor said, are you sure that this is a good sell on the job market? Sure, sure. Okay. Um, But what the course does is look at this question, what is life from um, a variety of interdisciplinary angles. And we look at sort of what is, how do we define life in in the arts, the sciences, you know, there are so many things like, you know, does art imitate life? All of these sayings, we sort of try to take them seriously for a second and sort of look at what um, kind of answers we might come up with. And so we look at human life and how we live with each other. Um, We look at animal life, we look at plant life. And then we also look at um, life in outer space. We look at artificial intelligence and we look at all those um, things in between. And so when we look at viruses, for instance, where we don't, you know, where where we sort of have an in-between category. I mean, that's, that's where we get to all of those monstrous figures that are not living but also not dead right right and so um it's really fun because we just explore things that might perhaps otherwise be sometimes dismissed sort of as oh that's fiction but in this course it's not necessarily about is this is this um is this made up or is this real but the the point is if this is something we imagine as humans what, what function does it have for us? How, mm. What does it tell us about this question of how we think about life? Yeah. Because ultimately it comes down to definitions. And yeah. really one of the main takeaways is it depends on how we define it. And this is so true for, for, for everything. But if we, if we apply it to the term life, um, we see what kind of huge consequences it can have to define life one way or another. Sure. Um, there are big ethical debates, of course, about this with the end of life and the beginning of life, yes. uh, human life, right? And mm-hmm. there are big debates of that about that when it comes to animal life. Um, but the debates are perhaps not as obvious when it comes to plant life, for instance. 
we think about that differently. Um, it's and and when it comes to things like AI and and extraterrestrial life, we we also get to speculate a little, right? Yeah. And we get to think about um, you know why these categories are fascinating and and what this tells us about the the things we know about life and what we don't know. Yeah. And ultimately, there isn't an, an answer to the question, "What is life?" So, sure, sure. really, this course is all about critical thinking and sort of bringing together um, interdisciplinary perspectives to to think through this big question and realize that questions like that are not asked to find an answer. It's it's about sure. the asking and and what yeah. you do along the way. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's so interesting. Cause you know, scientists can sort of rattle off the things, the list of things that yeah. define something as being living. Right. And they make a lot of sense, but um, then you do think about, like, I always think about viruses and I think, well, if they're not mm -hmm. living, how do they get into your body and actually alter cells and make you sick? If it's just dead, it shouldn't be able to do that to you. Right. But right. at the same time, we know that they don't do these other, you know, parts of the definition of what it is to be alive. They don't satisfy all of those. Yep. Um, and I often think about it from the perspective of, you know, being an animal lover, but at the same time, not being a vegetarian. And sometimes mm -hmm. you think about, you know, okay, so does that mean that I value animal life less than I value my own life? Because mm -hmm. I tend to be pretty much, you know, ooey gooey around animals and I love mm -hmm. them and I believe they have emotions and feelings and mm -hmm. all those things. How am I able to put that aside <laughs> yeah. and sit down and eat dinner and have a chicken breast or have a piece of pork, you know, when I can look at a pig and go, I think that's an intelligent animal with feelings. Mm -hmm. So I could imagine just grappling with these ideas of life and what it means yeah. to be alive is enough. Like we don't necessarily have to expect to answer these questions, but even just engaging with that in your own mind is going to have value. Yeah. And I mean, what you describe, uh, that's, there's a concept for that. And I think it helps us also to have concepts. So it's called the absent referent. If you see a steak, but you don't think of the cow, right? right. And so really, and, and, and having some of these concepts, I think can help um, us with sort of those bigger ethical questions too, because we see that we're not alone in, in asking ourselves these. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned the characteristics of living things. This is actually one of my exercises where I ask them to figure out how many there are, because if you start researching this, you actually get different answers and mm. you get slightly different terminology and you have to square it with one another. And yeah. for a lot of people, this is the moment where they realize, oh, the natural sciences too sort of, uh, it depends on definitions, sure, right? There sure. too, you have to th figure this out. Yep. Um, so I love that exercise because it's, um, it's really, people have to think critically and they realize it's not necessarily just about, opinions are not just necessarily just about beliefs, right? right. There, there's evidence involved in this sure. and there are ways that my opinions get shaped and the way I think. And so I think in the beginning, this course really, um, is, is, is sort of, it, it hurts some people's brains in the sense that mm -hmm. they have to think, it's uncomfortable. It's having yeah. to think outside the box and sort of reevaluating where your um, convictions come from. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think that's what college is all about. That's why I think it's, it's great that it's a gen ed course because this is precisely the kind of thinking that um, can take you anywhere, right? There, yes. there are students who, who are um, pre-nursing, there are students who are pre-business, there's um, yep. You know, they're, they're computer scientists in this course, uh, they all pick up on a different thing in the description and ultimately life, um, you know, is relevant to them all. Yeah, 
Oh, that's so amazing. Well, I love that. I think that that is a class that probably everybody should take something along those lines where it's interdisciplinary and you're having Mm -hmm. to grapple with some big conceptual idea that's Mm -hmm. going to be challenging in some way or another. I mean, if we're always comfortable all the time, I don't think we grow. That's right. just the way that it works, right? <laughs> yeah. No, if college just confirms everything we know already, then why, why are we paying so much money for it? <laughs> why are we here? Exactly. Why are we doing it? Oh my goodness. Well, I've been, I've learned a lot today about you and the work that you do. Um, I feel very confident that students who take your classes are going to have an amazing experience, both um, just with the learning and the way that you do your classes being very engaging and interactive, but also with these bigger questions that are so deep and intricate. Um, so I think that's fantastic. So anyone who's listening, who's looking for a gen ed, take a class with Dr. Jacobs. It sounds really fascinating. <laughs> and Thank you. Um, yeah, and I really look forward to continued uh, conversations and collaborations with you in the future. Thank you so much. This was so lovely. I, yeah. I feel really honored that you, you know, wanted to know all these things about me. It's, it's just a, a great idea to have a podcast like this and learn more about each other. Yeah, well, thanks again. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So have, have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye.